name I pray. Amen. So as, uh, as I mentioned, we're in part two of our Remember series. And so it's just a, uh, a series that we've got to help us to remember the things that God has done, uh, to remember the things that God is doing. And so there will be multiple parts of that. And last week, uh, as Pastor Tony got us started, uh, we remember the things that God has done as we started in Second chap- uh, Peter chapter 1. And so we'll be Picking up in verse five, uh, but before we get started, I kind of want to set the table for our conversation tonight. Uh, So as we see, uh, we live in a world where identity is solely based upon confession in our world today. Now, spend some time thinking about this for just a second. I've thought about this a lot this week. We live in a world where the identity of most people is solely based upon simple confession. Think about Alabama fans, okay? You knew it was coming, right? Think about Alabama fans. Now, in the 1990s, the Alabama Crimson Tide were Crimson Terrible, right? I mean, they were no good at all. Michael's a big fan. I forgot Mike's a big fan. So, yeah, so, you know, we got all these fans in the 1990s that were silent. You didn't see bumper stickers. You didn't see... But then, all of a sudden, Saban comes over, and then they start winning some titles, and all of a sudden, everybody's a... Alabama fan. Everybody loves to say roll tide, right? And it's based on a confession. It's that I believe that Alabama is the best football team. And hey, guess what? This year, props to Alabama, Scott. They did well. They won the title. So they're the national champions. So anybody can be an Alabama fan. And last year, you know, a couple years ago, I confessed that when Clemson played against Alabama, guess what I bought? A Clemson t-shirt. And I wore it mainly to aggravate Scott Miller, but I did wear it proudly. And I said, hey, I'm a Clemson fan. Now, I think there's a lot of good things about Clemson. They got, you know, some good guys over there. But, but it's simply confession. And, our, and now you can, you can say anything. Think about it in our church world. You can come to church and you can profess to be a believer and instantly your identity at least perceptively, is that you're a Christian, right? You just, I'm a Christian, I'm here at church. And so, or you say, well, you go to Pentecostal church, but well, you're a Pentecostal. Or you go to Catholic church, well, you're a Catholic. Right, so identity is this confession, and our world ultimately accepts it right out of the gate. Our culture also accepts association without any type of effort. You can associate yourself with anything or anyone by proximity or by confession or whatever you want to say. And the world will say, okay, well, that's what you're going to do. No problem. That's what you are. Association without any effort. I got to thinking about this. You know, there's a lot of people that are for a lot of things. And there are a lot, a lot of people that are against a lot of things. Take, for instance, atheists. Okay. So atheists are, this is an easy example, but atheists, uh, they are people who don't believe that God exists. Right. And so... They actually boycott God in some areas and they, uh, you know, say, well, God doesn't exist. We don't believe that anything that God says is true because God is not true. So they don't believe in God. But yet, but yet, how many people who don't believe in God or even maybe just not even atheists? How about people that do not believe in church or don't participate in Christianity? How many of those people have shown up to work on Christmas Day and said, no, I don't believe in God, and so I'm not taking the paid day off. I'm putting in my work today. Right? Nobody's doing that. They're, they're cashing that check. If you're going to give me a day off and pay me for it, well, then no problem. Or how about the people who 
use Bible quotes, and I said people here, and you can define that, who use Bible quotes for their own benefit, yet their lives are far from holy. I mean, have you seen people on television lately use Scripture and, you know, they cut a little portion of it and use it for their point that they're trying to make, and yet you say, but everything else in your life is the total opposite of who Jesus is, and yet you're going to use this little part of Scripture to benefit yourself. This is association without any effort. They're associating for the benefit, but there's no effort in fellowship, none whatsoever. So, you know, I, I got to thinking more about this, and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of other examples of this. Think about this, for instance. People will sign a petition as long as it doesn't require me to do anything, right? If you come to my house and say, hey, I'm against so-and-so or I don't want this to happen. I got a letter in the mail the other day and they said, hey, we're having this court date and uh, one of your neighbors is building something. I don't even remember what it said. And if you'd like to uh, object to that, then you should show up. Nobody's going to that, right? Because it requires effort. It requires me to do something. We just like the credit of being associated with it, but I'm not going to do anything that requires any effort. Unfortunately, this has crept into part of the church culture as well. I remember back when foster care uh, Rescue 100 was started. And so lots of people were involved and lots of people still are involved in foster care. You see, everybody is for foster care until you need someone to babysit. If you have had foster children, that's a hearty amen. I mean, look, let's be honest. I I don't want to step on toes right out of the gate, and I I really consider deleting that, but it's true, right? Because it's easy to talk about it and associate ourselves with it, but when effort is required, then all of a sudden, now wait a minute, that encroaches on my comfort. That encroaches on my belief system or whatever you want to say. How about missions? Everybody's for missions, until it's time to sign up to go. We have, we have some people right now in the mission field from our fellowship. Not a lot, but we have a few. And I'm not saying that, you know, not everybody's going to go. I understand that. I understand not everybody can go. I'm not, this, my, my goal is not to condemn us. I'm just trying to get your mind thinking about this association and effort. Everyone is for Jesus until it costs me something. Right? Look, re- listen to the rich young ruler. I mean, there's so many examples of this in Scripture, but, you know, he was, hey, Jesus, I'm all for you. I got a great life. Everything is fantastic in my life. I'm super wealthy. Everybody likes me. I'm the rich young ruler. And I need to add you to my portfolio, and then I'll have everything. And Jesus said, Well, buddy, it's going to cost you something. And the Bible says that he turned around and he left because he wasn't willing to pay the price of what it costs to follow. Jesus, And so the question is, and this is something that people are really wrestling with today, which I think is good, is, well, how much am I willing to pay to stand up for what I believe? You see, what, what culture has done, and you may, not, you may not have realized this or not, but what's happened is not really political in the last few months. What's happened is actually very spiritual. And here's what I mean by that. What has happened in the polarization of our society today is it has really uncovered biblical illiteracy. It's uncovered what we actually do believe. Because we can say all day long, here's what I believe, word association. I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. 
I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Him. I believe that Jesus is the only way. I believe that Christians should act this way. I believe that Christians should be involved in these type of things. We say those things because it's easy and safe and comfortable to say it. When we're in here, we all believe the same thing. But it is when those around us don't believe the things that we believe, then we really get to see, do I really believe what I say I believe? An effort becomes part of the equation. An association is out the door. The benefits of following Jesus are not easy believism, right? If you want to follow Jesus, as he told the rich young ruler, he says, you must sell everything and follow me. In other words, I've got to be your number one. I've got to be the focus of your life. I've got to be uh, the treasure as the New Testament teaches us. And so one of the things that we've come to realize in our culture today is how much do I really depend upon my faith? I don't watch the news anymore. I do not read anymore. Um, probably in the next few days, I will no longer be on social media because it's, there's no benefit in my life. It may be a great benefit to you. It's not to me. And so what I've decided is it's more important for me to zero in on the things that actually are edifying, that are true, that are honest, that are trustworthy, instead of me spending my time worrying about things that don't matter. You know, I just want to say this. I probably shouldn't. I just want to say this. There are a lot of people who spend a lot of time talking about things that might happen. If you would just spend a fraction of your time talking about things that we know will happen, the Word of God, then think of how much better the world would be. I mean, so many people get hung up on what might happen, and that's not what we're talking about tonight, but that really bothers me. Because I, I just want to scream. But you know what will happen. Jesus said, hey, everything that I said I would do, I did. And there's one thing left that hasn't happened yet, and that is I'm coming for you. Right? And that's what we ought to be heralding. That's what we ought to be shouting from the rooftops that there is a God and He still loves us and He hasn't abandoned us, right? I'm with you in the flood and the fire. You're faithful forever. Your promises are true, right? That's what we ought to be declaring. But when it requires effort, all of a sudden, well, now, wait a minute. I don't know if I signed up for that. Where was this in the contract again? Right? We've got to be careful about this whole easy believism and association without effort. You see, Peter, remember the author of 2 Peter. I understand the room is heavy right now. Uh, Peter understands this, okay? Peter understands what it means to reap the benefits of association. Okay, remember, he learned the hard way that being a Christian is more than just being associated with Jesus. He denied Jesus three times all in one night, right? He just got it all out of the way in one swing. But when he looks back on his life, as Pastor Tony talked about last week, there are some things in Peter's life that he doesn't look back and say, man, I hate I did that. But he looks back and says, I'm glad I learned from that. And here's what God taught me in that moment. And so in our own walk with God, we've got to be careful about this association without effort. It takes effort to follow Jesus. It takes effort to follow Jesus. And I think in, for some how, some crazy way in our culture that the church has been lulled to sleep to believe that attendance is the substitute for spiritual growth. And that is far from the truth, right? We've got to be careful about what we say that we believe and what we actually 
follow through with. You see, every person who has ever stepped foot inside of a church building heralds the verses that we looked at last week. And so let's read those as a review. Second Peter chapter one and verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Jesus has provided everything. And in a sigh of relief, we all say amen, which means so be it. It doesn't mean what other people are saying it means. It means so be it. Right. And so. We, we all say, amen, praise the Lord. God, you did everything. Thank you that my salvation is not contingent on my ability to earn it. Because trust me, I can't do it. Nor can you, nor can anyone else. Because we've all tried. We've all tried to be good. We've all tried to do the right thing. And just like Paul wrote in Romans 7, when I try to do the right thing, sin shows up and says, ha ha, got you, you can't do it. And so we read last week and every single person who's ever darkened the door of a church building celebrates the fact that, yes, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Right. That's a celebration of our faith. Whereas every other belief system says you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. And Jesus says, no, you know what? I've actually done all that for you. And the Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of the father because he is done. When he left earth, he said, it is finished. He completed what God sent him to do. The mission of Jesus is complete. It's done. End of the chapter. We can celebrate and we certainly benefit from the reality of that fact. That Jesus did it all. And what a celebration to know that. What a celebration and a comfort to believe that God has granted us everything through Jesus that is necessary for life and godliness. And so none of you are waiting for a second dose of Jesus, all right? The vaccines might take two shots, but Jesus only takes one, right? And so we're not waiting around for a a booster shot or we're not waiting around for some extra. No, we're not waiting for that because we already, if you have the spirit of God inside of you, you have everything that you absolutely need for everything that you'll ever encounter, including death. Right? We've got it all. So it takes all the pressure off of us. And then, so he goes on in verse four, he says, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises. What great clarifiers there, precious and very great. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, which is the spirit of God inside of us, Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Again, what a great description that we have escaped death and hell and eternal separation from God simply because of what Jesus has done. He uses the word granted here, says by which he has granted us. It means to bestow. And so God has bestowed on us or he has gifted us, not by earning Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He has gifted us. He has given us these very precious and great promises. Those are the things that we ought to be talking about today. Those are the things we ought to be declaring. Those are the things that we ought to be resting in. It's a gift. So in the sovereignty of God, you and I have been redeemed. Our salvation is secure. John 10, 29 says, no man can pluck you from the father's hand. Our salvation is secure through Jesus. And I am forever Saved by the imperishable seed of God. Not by my works, not by anything that I've done, but by what Jesus did. 
So the question that we want to answer tonight is this. Does that mean that I do nothing? Does that mean that I do nothing? After all, God is sovereign, right? He's going to work everything out. Romans 8, 28. I'm going to challenge you on some thinking. So there's going to be some rhetorical questions as we go through this. But what what does that mean? If Jesus did everything, then that means I don't have to do anything. And it's all complete and done, right? After all, God is sovereign. We live in this now, you know, better known, biblically illiterate culture because we, we, we say, well, here's what I think is going to happen or here's what, you know, whatever. But what, you know, scripture clearly teaches us how this is all going to come to a close and ever how God decides that's going to happen. I'm totally okay with that. Okay. I wasn't there in Job when God was talking to Job and he says, Hey, Job, where were you? Matt wasn't there. Okay. God decided to do it how he decided to do it. And I'm okay with it. I'm totally okay with that. You see, everyone has become an expert on all of the theories today. But what has become very apparent is that a lot of people aren't very grounded in their faith. There's many who believe that since God has redeemed us, that all we have to do now is just wait for his return. Sounds a little bit like the Thessalonians, right? He has done all the work. There is nothing for us to do. Is that true? Is that right? You see, if I'm going to be transformed, there's a belief system that says God will do it. God's going to transform me. God's going to change my thoughts. God's going to change my attitudes. God's going to change everything about me. If I'm going to be sanctified, God's going to do it all. After all, don't we sing songs that say holiness is what I long for? Holiness is what I need. So take my heart and mold it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, O Lord, to yours. You know that song, right? You've heard that before. It's a great song. I like the song. But what the interpretation of that has become is take my computer and fix it. When you're done, bring it back. Take my car and repair it. You know, take my job and increase my salary. You know, take my house and make it what I want it to be. That's become the mentality of that song. It's not that there's no participation, but that's what we have become a culture of is association without effort. And we say, God, I'm terrible and I'm a sinner and I acknowledge that. And you're sovereign and you're totally and absolutely in control over everything. And so here, take all my bad things and go fix them and then bring them back to me when they're good to go. We have a culture that believes that. It communicates that we are passive and only God is active. Now think about that. Think about that. So in salvation, God could have made us all accept Him, right? He could have said, everybody's going to be saved. It's all my creation. I want all of them in heaven. I'm going to redeem every single one of them. He could have done that. Without your permission, if you will, He could have said, I'm going to save you. Chuck, I love you. I'm saving you. Tim, I love you. I'm saving you. Brandon, I love you. I'm saving you. God could have done that, right? But he didn't. He gave us free will. He could have said, there is no tree. There is no opportunity for sin. But that's not what he did. We know that free will was an opportunity for humanity to choose Jesus, right? To choose God. 
Well, wouldn't the same be true if God just said, okay, once you acknowledge me as Lord and Savior, I'm going to take everything bad in your life, and I'm going to remove it, and I'm going to take it home and clean it, and I'm going to bring it back and give it to you, and then you'll instantly be perfect. Then what would be the need for us to be on earth anymore, right? Right, and salvation, you would just be raptured, which would be awesome, that'd be fantastic. But then who would tell the people that were left about Jesus? So... Active versus passive. Is God the only active part of our faith? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I made a very clear point that God has done everything that is necessary for life and godliness. But we do have some participation. We don't just sit around and do nothing. I've said this before because I think it's funny, but I also think it's true. That we are sitting on the premises instead of standing on the promises. That's what a lot of us are doing. So I just, I got to thinking about active versus passive and uh, the differences of all that. And so all this is going to come up at the same time and then we're going to talk through it. But active versus passive. Think about active versus passive. You see, when you have someone who's active, it encourages you, right? Think about activity or physical activity. When you work out, it encourages blood flow and it encourages you to eat healthy and it encourages discipline. There's so many things that... Activity encourages, whereas passivity, passivity doesn't care, right? Passivity is comfortable with where they're at. Passivity is comfortable in staying exactly the way that they are, and they have no interest in being changed. And so someone who's passive is very nonchalant. You know, maybe this is a barometer for you to say, well, am I active or passive? Do I encourage or am I very nonchalant? I just don't care. Active stretches, you know, when, when you're active, what you're doing is, is you're involved in things that, uh, when you're active in your faith, you're involved in things that you are not fully equipped in your mind to do, but God has equipped you because you, He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. And so what it does is it stretches you to do things that you didn't know that you could do. I got an email just last night that said... Hey, I just want to let you know, I, I'm, I'm going to lead a D group for the last several years. I've been a part of one, but I really felt God was calling me to step out of my comfort zone and to lead a group. And praise God, they're leading a group. And here's all the people in my group. Stretching. Someone who is active in their faith is stepping forward. They're moving. They're active in their faith. Yet someone who's passive is just sitting by. Doing the same thing. No change. I made a comment a few uh, months ago in a Sunday morning sermon that if you've been in the same small group uh, for years and there is no change, you need to change small groups. Because God is growing. Someone who's active is stretching. They're encouraging. They're, they're motivating. You know, when I, I used to work at uh, Hibbit Sports and there was an assistant manager that worked at Hibbit Sports at the time. I was, that made me think about this when I was... Uh, preparing for the message and they worked all the time you know it was a college job and so you know we would come in and stock shoes and you know get the truck unload the truck and all that and then you know we would make products available and every time that uh you would come to work if that person was at work they were always working and you know what it caused me to want to do work harder I would see them working. I thought, well, man, I'm a slacker. I'm just standing over here doing nothing. And they're making me look bad. I got to get to work. I got to get involved. I got to do, you know, I got to be doing the things that they're doing. Well, it's the same thing in your faith that what, when you're active in your faith and you're pursuing Jesus, it motivates other people to follow Jesus. 
It motivates them to pursue the God that you're pursuing. Why would you spend your time doing that? And that question will linger in their mind to cause them to pursue Jesus. Whereas passive, it just dismisses those things. Ah, well, you know, give it time. They just got saved. It'll pass. It's very dismissive. Someone who's active in their faith, they change. They're different. It's pretty easy to see who spends time with God and who doesn't. I mean, I'm not the one you'll answer to, so it doesn't matter what I think. Uh, But it's pretty easy to see, right? Someone who's active in their faith, someone who's active in spending time with God is becoming more like Jesus. I'm not saying they're becoming perfect. I'm saying that they're striving to be more who God created them to be. And so what that means is that they change. That they become more Christ-like. They don't become more this person-like or that person-like, but they become more like Jesus. And they change. Whereas someone who's passive in their faith, well, there's a lot of pretension with that. Because in order to stick around and be passive, you've got to pretend that you're active. You've got to pretend that you're doing the things that everybody else that's active is doing. And so there's a lot of pretension when it comes to passive faith. You see, think about Peter. Peter was pretending to be grounded in his faith the day that Jesus was arrested. But his passive faith in that moment came to light because of why? Because he had the reality of, do you really believe what you say you believe? Moment. Lastly, active grows. That you should be further along in your walk with God than the day that you got saved. I dare say, this is probably pretty accurate for everybody, but the day that you got saved, you probably didn't know much about Jesus. You probably didn't know much about the Bible. You probably didn't know much about spiritual growth. You probably didn't know much about sanctification or justification. You probably didn't know much about who God wanted you to be or where God wanted you to go, what ministries God wanted you to be involved in. But you knew that God loved you and that God saved you and that God called you. And that was enough to motivate you to be active in your faith. And so what happened is you began to grow and God began to use you and you were faithful in small things. Then God made you uh, in, in charge of bigger things and God began to use your influence to influence the kingdom. And so you began to grow. Whereas someone who's passive in their faith, well, typically they complain a lot. They groan and mumble and complain about, you know, whatever new activity is happening or whatever's going on in the church. I mean, there's a lot of examples of this. These are just a few. And so this is an example of active versus passive faith. Someone who's just sitting around and doing nothing. You see, when we talk about God being the only one that's active, God is the only one that is active in salvation. God saves you. God is the one that redeemed you. God is the one that drew you to himself. Romans 3.10. There's none who seeks after God. There's none that's righteous. It wasn't. You weren't looking around one day and said, you know what? I think I'm going to find out more about this Jesus guy. And my desire, you know, humanly speaking, is to follow. No, that didn't happen. God drew you to himself just like he drew me to himself. God is the active one and the only active one. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we were dead in our sins and trespasses, right? You're not doing much if you're dead, okay? And yet God calls us out and he saves us and he redeems us. And then as a part of that, then guess what? We become active. He activates faith in our life. Faith comes from God. You know that. And so God activates faith in our life. And when he activates that faith in our life, then that means we become active 
participants in God's work in and through our life. And so Peter is not talking about salvation here. It's a mistake to think that salvation by faith alone means that one's faith never needs to work. Right? And then what James said? Faith without works is dead. And so as we think about this, uh, that God is active and we are actively a part of what God is doing, we're all made in the image of God. And what does the Bible say about God? Well, the Bible says that God is always at work. Right? God is not a passive God. God didn't create uh, the heavens and the earth and all within in seven days and then sit back and say, okay, you guys let me know if you need anything down there. That's not how it worked, right? God is constantly at work. And if we had time, and it would be amazing to do this, but if we had time, we could say, okay, somebody stand up and testify what God is doing at work in your life right now, today. And all across the room, people stand up and say, God's saving my neighbor. God's at work in my neighbor's life. God's at work in my family's life. God's at work in my job. God did this in my life. God's moving in my neighborhood. God's moving in my school. God's moving and on and on and on and on. Because why? Because God's at work. That's what God does. That is his nature. That is his activity is to always be involved and to be moving. And so what does scripture command us to do? Well, scripture commands us to do what? To many, in many places to do unto others. Right? To love one another. The one another's we read about. We read about the, the uh, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's an action. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Go make disciples. Jesus said in John that we should love our neighbor. We're commanded as believers to forgive one another. We're commanded in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling together. There's so many places in Scripture that command us to be actively involved and what God is doing. These are all actions. So if we're commanded to be involved, to be active, well, then what is the work? What is the work that we're supposed to be involved in? What is the work that God saved us to be a part of? Well, Peter gives us kind of uh, bookends here of what he's talking about. In verse 3, Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called you which is part of what I talked about earlier, that God drew you to himself. God called you to himself. And then in verse 10, he bookends it by saying this, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So he says, God called you, so you need to confirm your calling. That you need to be a part. So what he's telling us here is that we have been called to a calling. That God has saved you. That he has redeemed you. He has called you. To a calling that he has called you to do something. And so then we back up to what we just talked about. What has God called me to do? Well, where do you live? Where do you work? Who's in your family? Where do you have influence over? What is God calling you to do? God has called you to be a part of something. God has called you to be active in something. So as, we, as I thought about this, think about it this way. When people are called to do something, it always involves action. It always involves action. When someone is called to do something, it always involves action. Think about when there's an emergency and you call an ambulance or the fire department. Do you call an ambulance and say, hey, I just want to call and let you know that I'm having a heart attack and you guys just stay right where you're at. I just want to let you know that this happening over here where I'm at. No, that's not what you say, right? You call and say, hey, I'm having a heart attack. I need you to get over here. Who's closest to my house? Send somebody now. 
My house is on fire. You need to send a truck and a lot of guys with water, right? I need some action. And so when someone is called to do something, they're call, you're calling them to action. So as we think about this calling, when there is a calling that is placed on you, well, then you have an obligation to complete what you were called to do. So you, let's use my example again. We call the fire department. Hey, listen, my house is on fire. I need you guys to do something. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but, uh, you know, we just laid down for a nap. So can we come later? Will that work for you? Right? You're obligated. They're obligated to fulfill that calling. That's what they're there for. They've been called for a reason. It's the same thing when we talk about following Jesus. When God called, when God called the Israelites out of Egypt, well, they had to do something. He didn't say, go to sleep tomorrow morning, you're going to be out of Egypt. That's not what he said. He said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him that we're leaving and then we're all going to march right out of here. And so what did they have to do? All right, everybody in the morning, we're going to leave at 7 a.m. I need you to have all your belongings together. Pack tonight, make some bread. We're about to go walk, right? And so they all got up and they started walking. There was action when God called them. They had to do something. When God called Nehemiah to rebuild, what did he do? Did he write a book about it? God called me to rebuild. And one day I'm going to go do that. No. He said, you call me to do it, I'm going to do it. And so he took all the steps and he went to the king and asked for the letters and the whole nine yards to be prepared. And then he went and actively did what God called him to do. When God called Daniel to stand up for his faith. When God called Daniel to stand up for his faith, what did Daniel do? Something. Daniel said, okay, God, you want me to be active in my faith? I'll keep praying. They're not gonna, they can pass whatever law they want. I'm going to keep praying. Okay, God, you want me to, uh, to bow down to you and you alone? Okay, God, I'll do that. I'll be active in my faith. I'll stand up for what I believe in. I'll do what I say. I can do that, God. Right? And by the power of God, Daniel was able to do that, but he was called to do something and he did it. So how about the disciples? I thought about the disciples. When Jesus called the 12 disciples, he, he said, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says they left their nets and followed Jesus. They took action. They had to do something. And so now we get to the latter part of what we're going to talk about here tonight. What is it? that we're called to do. What has God called us to do? You say, okay, I'm, I'm on board. I see what you're saying. God did everything necessary for salvation. God's provided me all the tools and resources to be who he wants me to be. What am I called to do? Great question. I would want to know the answer to that. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 1. It's on your handout, verse 5. It says, for this reason, for this very reason, very specific Peter is, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's pause for a second. He said a lot here. So he, he starts and says, for this very reason. 
So he says, Jesus has given you everything. God's provided everything you need for life and godliness. And the promises that we know of God, he talks about in verse 4. And he says, so for this reason, so for the reasons that we just talked about, make every effort to supplement your faith. He doesn't say if it's possible. He doesn't say put a half effort in if you'd like to. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he goes into this list of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection uh, and love. And then he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, so increasing is progressive. So in other words, if they're not passive, but if they are continual, they're active, they're growing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask the question, why is it that so many churches today are half empty and ineffective and unfruitful? Now, we just read that God has called us. We just read that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Every single person who associates themselves, remember association without effort, that associates themselves with Jesus is equipped to complete the mission. Right? They're equipped to do what God has called them to do. And so God says, here's what you're called to do. You are called to make every effort, uh, effort to supplement your faith. And then he lists all the things. He doesn't say supplement your faith and then give it your best guess. And whatever you come up with, I'm good with. That's not what he said. He gives specific things of what we are to supplement our faith with. Virtue, and, and, and we just read the list. And he says that if you do these, and they are increasing, and so I think it'd be good for us, self-reflection, when you get time tonight, go home and read through that list. We're going to look at it here in just a second. And ask yourself this question. Number one, do these qualities, are these qualities reflective in my life? Do I reflect these qualities? This is like a first John list, you know? Like, this is what a believer does. Are these things me? So do these qualities reflect in my life? And number two, are they increasing? Are they growing in my life? Because Peter says that if they're not, if they're not uh, present and increasing, well, then he says you're ineffective and unfruitful. He goes on to verse nine. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, and we just read, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound like a bunch of passive words to me. How about you? I mean, that's a lot of get busy, right? That's a lot of get after it. And so true faith sweats. True faith grows because of what Jesus has done. And so our faith should sweat. Like it ought to be, it's not easy to follow Jesus. If you think it's easy to follow Jesus, then I think you're asleep, right? It's hard to follow Jesus, He never said it would be easy. He said it'd be worth it, right? And so our faith, we ought to be actively involved in doing the things that God has called us to do. And we just, we're going to break these down here in just a second. But we ought to be actively involved in that. And when we do, it's hard to do that. You see, it's not what God has done that Peter is emphasizing here, but what man needs to do. Of how we need to be involved in the things that God has given us. 
And so what, what Peter, of course, and again, a phenomenal verse, as Pastor Tony said last week, one of the most quoted verses maybe from the pulpit here uh, is that God has granted us all that we need according to life and godliness. But what Peter is emphasizing here is that because God has done that, now you should be active in your faith. That it should have caused you to be who God called you to be. That it should cause you to grow. That out of the gratitude of who Jesus is, that it ought to motivate you, as active faith does, to be who God called you to be. You see, this is the kind of faith that takes fallen men and women home to heaven. It's the one that operates by the way of addition. By the way of addition. You see, God is always adding things. God is always including or increasing, as Peter talks about here. Uh, the things that God has called us to do. And so God is saying, look, I didn't just give this to you. Well, what does the Bible say about the treasure and, and the parable of the treasures where uh, some of them went out and multiplied and the one who buried it, God said, hey, what are you doing? You're supposed to be increasing what I've given you, right? It's the same thing with our faith. And that was the example that was given. And so what, what Peter is encouraging us to do is that we should take these Uh, these things that God has called us to do and that we ought to be increasing in those. He says, those who finish well, they do this in faith by holding fast to the promises of God. And so this, this addition that God has called us to be a part of, this active faith, if you will, how do we do that? Well, it's not because we're good. It's not because we're courageous. It's not because we're virtuous. It's because God gave us those things. That's what Peter started with. And so what, what uh, the scriptures are teaching us here is that these promises that we're holding on to are promises that God has given us based on who he is and what he's done. And so we can go out and we can pursue godliness. We can pursue brotherly affection without having to worry whether we're going to get uh, damaged or hurt in the process because we're not looking for you to reciprocate that, right? We talked about this in our Inside Out series. I'm not looking for you to give me the things that only God provides so I can offer you something, brotherly love, affection. I can uh, pursue godliness without worrying about whether you're going to give it back to me, right? Because I don't, I'm not looking for that from you. You're not looking for that from me. And so here we find the tension between the sovereignty of God and the participation of man. Now, we could spend the next year and a half, two years talking about this. But we have this tension that exists then. That God says, I'm in absolute control. I work all things out according to my plan, God's plan. And I believe that 100%, just as Go on record. But then there's this part that I just don't go to sleep and wait for him to return. So how do those two play together where our our calling is not something that we invest in in order to reap these benefits? In other words, I'm not trying to grow it so that I'll be better off, but it's an obligation that I have as a result of God already giving me these benefits. So in other words, my faith is active because what God has done. It's a result of my faith. It's not to achieve my faith. Does that make sense? Spurgeon was asked how he reconciled God's sovereignty with human responsibility. And he said, I never try to reconcile friends. Right? And so we don't have to say, well, how is it possible that God's in control of everything? And yet he expects me and calls me to be actively involved in my faith. How can those two things exist? Well, he's God. That's how they can both exist. 
And that's what he's called us to do. And so in faith, what we say is yes and amen, right? The promises of God are found according to Corinthians and yes and amen. So we say, God, okay, you've called me to do that. And I don't completely understand how you're totally in control of everything, but yet you involve me in that. God, I don't totally understand how those two train tracks never uh, cross each other, but I believe them to be true because that's what scripture teaches. And so instead of trying to figure out which one's wrong, which one's right, what if we say both of them are right? That God is sovereign and he did call me to be a part of what he's actively involved in. You see, our salvation is not based on our work. We know that it's based on Jesus's completed work on the cross. However, if we're non-participants, then we become robots again, just like the garden, right? All of a sudden he did everything. We do nothing. And so we're just beneficiaries of something we had nothing to do with. And God doesn't expect us to be involved in it. Well, that's not what Bible teaches us. In every letter that Paul wrote, he demonstrated that a Christian's work is a natural, inevitable, and faithful development as a result of God's work. So because of what God did, here's what we're doing. Here's what God is doing through us. It's a result of what God has done. Each of the letters that Paul writes ends with a series of directives that guide us into the kind of work that participates in God's work. Every one of Paul's letters ends with, okay, and here's what you should do with what you know. And so as we dig in a little bit here, as we start in verse five, he says, make every effort to supplement. The the verb that he uses here indicates generous and costly participation. Generous and costly participation. You see, when we're called to do something, there's a cost involved, right? Firemen, for instance, we'll use that as an example. They spend time away from their family, right? They, uh, they have to go into danger. And it's an easy example, but I mean, think of the cost involved to be a fireman. You, you know, you, you spend half the year away from your family. You go to places, nobody, you know, everybody else is running from a fire. They're running into a fire. It's the same thing with our faith. You know, I've shared many times, but the verse God's always used in my life, uh, you know, for the last 10, 12 years has been, uh, I want to offer a sacrifice to God if it doesn't cost me something. Our faith should cost us something. And we, we're getting to the point in culture to where that's starting to shift a little bit. Have you noticed that? It's starting to shift a little bit. So you say you are a believer in Jesus. You say you're a child of God. You say you're a Christian. Okay, well, the cost of that starting to rise a little bit. That's okay. Don't be afraid of that. It's okay. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world today. There's nothing to be afraid of. The cost of discipleship is well worth the price that Jesus paid, right? The cost of discipleship... if. Don't be afraid. I'll just say that. It's okay. I think we we need to tell our Christian brothers and sisters, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. There's still work to be done. That's why we're still here. God's still doing something. That's why we're still here. And so this generous and costly participation, we're starting to experience a little bit of that right now. And it's okay. I think it's good, right? You know, that's why they have tryouts in sports. They want to see who's willing to put in the work. It's okay. 
that you want to say, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that this is what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to stand on those truths or the promises, as Peter talks about here. I believe those things to be true, and God, I'm going to stand with you to the very end, and I don't know what it's going to cost me, but whatever it costs me, I believe that it's worth it. And that's where your faith kicks in. That you say, hey, I'm not sure what the price is going to be, but I wrote a blank check when I said yes to forgiveness. And so whatever you want to write on those zeros, I'm okay with that. That's a hard place to get to, right? And it's not a place that we desire to be, but this is a place that faith takes us. Because that's where God called us to be. That you trust me, that you'll sell everything, rich young ruler, because you believe that I'm worth more than everything that you possess. And as Americans, we have a lot. We have a lot. And so he says, hey, this is a generous and costly participation. And this participation that he's talking about, well, is through the cultivation of what we already possess in Christ. It's through the cultivation of what we already possess in Christ. And so this supplementing, uh, this participation is, hey, you've already been given all the tools that you need. Maybe you just didn't realize you had them. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to cultivate situations in your life and I'm going to maneuver situations in your life so that those things will be exposed and that your faith will come to life and that various aspects of virtue, of virtue and godliness and brotherly affection and love, all those things will come into play. And whether you knew it or not, you possess all of those things right out of the gate when you said yes to the forgiveness of God. And so that faith that is activating then in your life begins to reveal all those things that God has given you and all these tools that we didn't even know we had. I didn't even know I was capable of loving people that way or uh, exhibiting brotherly affection. I didn't know I was able to do those things until I was put in a position that forced me to rely on that ability. And so that's where our faith comes into light, it comes into action. And he, he gives a list, and you can spend some time, uh, maybe tonight or this weekend, looking over it. But he talks about goodness, just moral goodness, you know, doing the right thing. He talks about knowledge, not just having information, but practical wisdom that you're taking the Word of God and that you're applying it in the right context and the right situation. He talks about self control here. You know, Today is a great time for you to exercise self-control, right? I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. That's a fruit of what uh, Peter is saying here. Endurance. Again, today's a great day for you to exercise endurance. To say, I believe that whatever happens is going to be okay because God's in control and believers will endure to the end. I've said this a lot here lately. It's fun to say, and it's definitely true, is I've read the last chapter. And whatever happens on the TV, I'm not watching it, so they can do whatever. Uh, but God's going to, you know, when, it, when I need to know something, God's going to tell me, right? I'm just waiting for that trumpet sound. Brotherly affection. How we love each other. John 13, 35, in love. And so aren't these simply manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit? Have you noticed the parallels there? They're, they're almost the exact manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. And so the issue here isn't whether the believer has them or not. You, you, if you're here and you're saved, you have them. The issue <coughs> is that the believer needs to grow in the degree that he or she is demonstrating them. That these ought to be the things that we're known by. 
Because we're called to exhibit these things in our life as believers. And so as we grow, God is growing us. We're manifesting these things. We're demonstrating them through the calling that, you know, the situation that God's put us in. And so then the question comes up, well, then why? Don't I have everything I need for life and godliness? Why do I need to grow? Why can't God just instantly change us all at once? Wouldn't that be great? Well, I believe that God doesn't instantly change us all at once because of our sinfulness. Hear me out for a second. I think it's because of our sinfulness that disables us from actually being able to receive all that God has for us all at once. I want you to think about that for a minute. I believe that we don't instantly become totally sanctified. This is just Matt's opinion. But I believe we don't become totally sanctified in an instant because we can't possess in our sinfulness all that God has for us and all that God is in an instant. We're not capable of doing that. And so there's this gradual removal of sin in our life and this gradual movement in, if you will, of the things of God in our life and that we, you know, sinfulness begins to diminish and godliness begins to grow in our life. And remember, God is not in the presence of sin. And so for us to be, uh, for the presence of God, the Spirit of God to be present in our life, sin has to decrease and godliness has to increase. I, th- I think it's the same way uh, with salvation. I don't want to confuse you here, but think about salvation. I believe that it's just like pregnancy. Either you're saved or you're not, right? You're not partially pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not, right? That's how it works. It's the same thing with salvation. You're either saved or you're not. But what I believe about salvation is that if God revealed everything there was that he wanted me to know about himself in one instant, then my brain would explode. My heart would explode. I couldn't capacitate. We can't capacitate all that there is to know about who God is. I mean, just think of those moments. uh, And just think of those moments of worship in your life. To where it's just you and God. You may be full, in a room full of people. That doesn't matter. It's just you and God in those moments of worship. And think of that experience and the feeling and, and, and that moment. You know what I'm talking about if you've been in that moment. Imagine that the fullness of everything there was to know about God was present in that moment. Because it, it is overwhelming for me a lot of times in those moments. I can't speak. I can't sing. You know, that King of Kings song that we sing. I can't sing that song. That's hard for me to sing. I just have to let those words bathe over me because it's incredible. It's incredible. And so I I just realized that, you know, as I was studying through this, and I I thought the same thing about salvation for years, that, you know what, God, in His goodness and His graciousness, He could come and He could say, you know, you wretched sinner, here's all the things about me, and it it would destroy you. But yet in his goodness, he says, here's a little piece of me that I'm revealing to you so you'll know a little more about me. And then as I grow and understand and God reveals these things to me, here's another piece of me. Here's another thing about me. Here's another thing about godliness. Right? And so God's just revealing those pieces of himself and those parts of who he is to me because I can't capacitate you. We can't capacitate even a fraction of who God is. I had a conversation this morning on the way to school with my kids about time. And uh, I said, you know, God's not limited by time. It's hard for us to think about that, but it's true. 
You know, if he needs to do something and time is lapsed, he'll just go back and do it, right? He can do whatever he wants. He's not limited by that. And so all the things that are true about God, I can't, I can't understand all of that. And so our sinfulness prevents us from instantly becoming all at once the things that God has in store for us. And so he, he talks about in verse 8 this progressive growth uh, in the influence of godly character that enables us to stand against the assaults of false teaching. He says in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And so he's just saying, you know, the Bible, when it talks about forgetting, it's not a a mental process, but it's this failure to practically take into account the meaning or the significance. So it means really to kind of misunderstand. And so here what Peter is saying is that God is, he's provided all this. He's expecting us to progressively grow. And so it's the evidence then, this growth in our life of the activity of God in our faith. It's the activity, it's the evidence of the activity of God in our faith. So when these things are present, you know, these things are written, 1 John 5, uh, 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I possess eternal life? It is because of the presence of the activity of God in my life, right? It's the things that God has done in my life. It's the evidence of the fruit. Matthew 7, 16, a tree is known by its fruit. And so it's the evidence of the fruit of what God has done in my life. We read in Genesis chapter 1 uh, this week in D group uh, about uh, creation, and in, in, in multiple places in chapter 1, the animals and, the, uh, and the, the fruit and the trees, Jesus said this, or the Bible, God said this. He said uh, that produced according to his kind, according to his kind, according to his kind. So I got to thinking about that. According to his kind, okay. So whatever the kind was, it was producing that same kind. So then I got to thinking about me. Well, what is the production in my life? What is the result of what I'm producing? Is it according to the kind? What is that kind? Is it godliness? Is it selfishness? Right? And so when we think about that, what are we producing? Well, Peter is saying that these, uh, these characteristics are evidence of who God is in your life. And they're manifestations of your faith. And so if we don't see an increase uh, effect in godly character in our lives, then we can't be sure that we've ever truly been saved. Right? I mean, that's the evidence is that there's activity of God in my life, that God is changing me, that God is moving in my life, and that I'm pursuing godliness, that I'm pursuing righteousness. Uh, Pastor Tony and Pastor Brian and I were talking yesterday that, you know, we go from being a slave to sin, Romans 6, to being a slave to righteousness. We're a slave to something, right? And so that's the change that takes place is that we serve a master. Which one is it? Assurance of salvation, uh, MacArthur writes, is directly related to present spiritual service and obedience, not merely to a past salvation event made dim in the disobedient believer's memory. In other words, if you're saved, there's evidence of your salvation today. So many times you hear testimonies of, 
I'm saved because in 1984 I walked an aisle and filled out a card. Or I'm saved because I said these words. Well, is that how you get saved? I mean, isn't salvation a transformation of the slave to sin to someone who is a slave now to righteousness? And now because of the presence of the Spirit of God, you pursue godliness? Isn't that what salvation ultimately is, which is an ongoing process as we just talked about? You see, God doesn't ask us to earn our salvation, but he does require that we demonstrate that we have it. I mean, what did Jesus say? Whoever professes me before men, I'll profess before my father in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus said? That's a demonstration of your faith. I, Matt Davis, believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and I declare my faith in him, right? I bear all and everything that I know about Matt, I give to Jesus. Isn't that what salvation is? You see, that's what's happening in verses 10 and 11. Peter is offering this plea and this stirring promise. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's already used in verse 5. So obviously he's very unapologetic here in his conviction that believers have some responsibility in their faith journey. And it's because it's in the present tense here that Peter is saying that whatever God is calling you to do, it is not a one and done. It's not that God saves you, you know, five months ago, five years ago, for me, 22 years ago. It's not that God saves you and leaves you. It's that God saves you and equips you to demonstrate the faith in which he placed inside of you. You see, Peter is describing an active involvement of the Christian in what you could say is confirming his or her salvation. Or as I heard many years ago, a duck walks and quacks and waddles because it's a duck. And a Christian lives and acts and talks and believes like a Christian because they're a Christian. It's the active involvement of the Christian. A few weeks ago, we talked about this in Philippians. I thought it would be fitting for us to be reminded that God is not opposed to effort, but to earning. God is not opposed to effort because he says, make every effort, Peter is writing here, to add to your faith. So he's not opposed to us being involved. As a matter of fact, he expects that to be a part. That's part of the redemption process. Think of, think of all that God could have done, and yet think of what he did do. He chose to use sinful man to communicate the message of the gospel. Think about that. I mean, talk about turning it over to a band of misfits, right? I mean, it's very easy for us to mess that up. And yet, in his sovereignty, he said, no, I trust him. And I'm going to give them the spirit of God to make sure Christians that they do what I've called them to do, what I've equipped them to do. And so he says, hey, believers, 
You want something that you want to change effect in your world today? You have everything you need for that. You just have to use it. You have to get involved in your faith. You have to stand up for what you believe to be true. Not what you think is true. Don't misunderstand me. No one wants to know your opinion today. Okay, let's just be clear. No one needs to know your opinion today, especially today. What people need to hear is the word of God. What people need to hear is absolute truth. What people need to hear is the the thing that stood the test of time. The number one best-selling book of all time. The most proven uh, authorship of anything that's ever been penned. That's what people need to hear today. They need to know that God loves them. They need to see God's love manifest in your life and in my life. They need to see brotherly affection. They need to see your pursuit and my pursuit of godliness. That's what they need to see. They need to someone, uh, they need to see someone who does what is right even when no one's watching. Moral goodness, right? Isn't that what virtue is? That's what people need to see, that you do the right thing. Not because someone's watching, but because you're obligated to the calling of what Jesus calls you to. That the price was too high on Calvary on a Friday 2,000 years ago for Jesus to spill his blood just for you and I to live in comfort. We're living in a mirage if we believe that our faith is not going to cost us something. That's not what Jesus died for. Because if it was, he wouldn't have had to die. Right? But he did it because it was a high price. Because the Bible says the wages of sin, yours and mine, is death. And someone had to die for it. And so, as believers... We should be actively pursuing the things of God with the goal of implementing all that he has already provided for us. So what I hope this motivates you to do is to go back and say, okay, heart check. Second Corinthians 13, five, examine myself. I'm looking here. All right. Is um, moral morality, moral goodness a part of my life? Is brotherly affection? Is endurance? Is self-control a part of my life? And then say, you know, God, look, I want to be a part. What do you call? I know you call me uh, to be a part of the family that I'm in. All right, God's called you to do that. God, I know you call me to be a part of the work that I'm in. You're there, okay? God called me to be a part of the neighborhood that I'm in. God, how can I be a change agent in this neighborhood? How can I be a change agent in my family? How can I be a change agent in my job? I'm not saying that you go to work tomorrow and say, all right, listen, at lunch every day, I'm going to read scripture and everybody's going to be required to sit down and listen to it. That's not what I'm telling you to do. You may have the authority to do that, but it's probably not going to go over well. What I am telling you to do is to live it. You know, at lunch, show brotherly love. Buy someone's meal. Serve someone. Exercise self-control when things don't go your way. Show endurance. Live a life of hope, believer, in a world that's hopeless. Right? Stand up for what you know to already be true. And when all the world falls apart and we stand there steady and unfazed and say, that's all right, God's in control. How in the world can you believe that? Because that's what God said and I believe it. And the faith is not something you've conjured up and you've worked out. It's something God's given you. And to exercise that in which you've already been given. Amen. Well, let's pray and thank God for it tonight. God, we love you. And God, we are so grateful for the hope that you have placed within us.